Well, I invite you to turn in your, in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 6. We continue making our way through the book of wisdom. Just going to give our attention just a, a few brief verses this evening. As Solomon, under inspiration of the Spirit, addresses the matter um, of the worthless man. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 12 to 15. A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech. He winks with his eyes. He signals with his feet. He points with his finger. With perverted heart, he devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. And in a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. One of the things that we've seen as we've been making our way through the book of Proverbs, in particular Proverbs chapter 6, is that this chapter, in this chapter Solomon provides us with a sort of taxonomy of the various kinds of fools one may encounter, or perhaps the various kinds of fools one may become. This is not an exhaustive classification, uh, and yet we see that uh, folly is this rather big tent category, and yet the, uh, the, the brand of the fool takes on different iterations. In verses 1 to 5, a few weeks ago, we considered uh, the folly of the thoughtless man, that man who endangered his family through foolish business practices, uh, taking up pledge and securities for strangers, putting the family farm on the line for somebody he does not know, who's kind of a bleeding heart, one who, who cares for people, but does so in a thoughtless way that puts his family at risk. In verses 6 to 11, we had considered the sluggish man, a man who brings uh, sudden ruin not on his family, but upon himself through his own inaction. Well, what we see here tonight is perhaps the worst of the three, uh, the foolishest of the fools, the most foolish of fools. It is the worthless man, the man who is not lazy, the man who labors diligently, and yet he is a man who labors diligently for the destruction not simply of himself, not simply of the family, but a man who labors diligently for the destruction of the community and society. So tonight we'll consider the character and the conduct of the worthless man and the fate that befalls him. There's three things I'd like us to consider. First, I'd like us to consider his worthless deeds. You'll see that here in verses 12 and 13. Secondly, we'll consider his perverted heart in verse 14. And finally, we'll consider the consequence that awaits, the sudden calamity that befalls him in verse 15. So the worthless deeds, the perverted heart, and the sudden calamity. I think it's a rather curious description that we have here that Solomon would describe a man as worthless you know, if you were to kind of catalog a series of words that one would, would use to describe the fool, how many of us would have worthless as part of our category? It, it kind of makes sense, but even speaking personally, it's always struck me anytime you come across uh, those times in Scripture when it speaks of the worthless man, it seems so cruel. Uh, and yet we find that Solomon is not the only author of Scripture to describe uh, such conduct in this kind of way. In fact, if you were to do a word search, you would find that this word for the worthless man is found 26 distinct times in the Old Testament. Uh, 
And I think if you were to examine all of these uses, there emerges, as it were, a composite portrait of a particular figure. The very first time we find this word comes to us in Deuteronomy chapter 13, which characterizes uh, those particular individuals who sought to lure Israel away from worship of the true God uh, to serve idols. The worthless man is, in fact, the descriptor for the idolater in the book of Nahum, who through his deception invites destruction on a pagan nation. Here is a man who is perverse in his worship. Here is a man who leads others around him into perverted worship. And yet we find that not only is he perverse in his worship practices, he is also a man who perverts justice. Twice in the book of Job, he describes the man who perverts justice and mocks justice as the worthless man. And we see so many descriptors in the Old Testament. Most notably, I think, is that of Eli's sons in 1 Samuel 2 who abused their ecclesiastical office as priests and began exploiting the people for personal gain. The, uh, the author for Samuel refers to them as, the, as those worthless men. Or you think of the book of Judges, the men of Gibeah, who, like the inhabitants of Sodom, ended up gang-raping a sojourner passing through their gates in a very hideous, dramatic event at the end of the book of Judges, something that leads the nation into civil war. In Judges 19 to 21, you read 1 Kings chapter 21, and you're told the, we're told the story of Jezebel who uh, convinces two men to lie under oath to claim that a certain owner, owner of a vineyard, a man by the name of Naboth, had blasphemed the Lord God. And so these men perjure under oath. They lie about the character of this godly man, and he is executed, and the queen of Israel, this wicked queen, takes the vineyard, his inheritance as her very own. And those two liars, those two perjurers, 1 Kings refers to them as worthless men. The worthless man despises authority in three distinct cases. This word characterizes uh, particular men who reject God's chosen king. You find it in 1 Samuel 10 when certain men repudiate Saul's kingship. This is before Saul had um, uh, gone down the the downward path of destruction. Men who rejected the the kingship of Saul. You find it again in 2 Samuel with certain men who had rejected the kingship of David. And then finally in 1 Kings, I'm sorry, 2 Chronicles, when uh, a certain man had uh, rejected Rehoboam's kingship, um, Solomon's oldest son. Three distinct places, the anointed king of Israel is rejected. In all of those instances, the men who reject God's appointed and chosen king are referred to as worthless men. Later on in this book, in Proverbs 16, the worthless man is characterized as the schemer of evil. In fact, when you read Psalm chapter 18, it is the very word that describes the tentacles of Sheol that rise up from the grave seeking to bring the Messiah down to destruction. What we have here, I think, is potent imagery. Think of what we mean when we speak of something being worthwhile. 
when we think of something having great worth, it speaks of the value of the thing, the cost or price of the thing. It speaks in some sense of the weightiness of the thing. This is not something light or ephemeral. And C.S. Lewis's uh, famous essay, which I, I just reread again this past week, The Weight of Glory, uh, we find in the Old Testament the word there for glory is something that means something like weightiness. There's a heaviness about it. There's something substantive when it speaks of something being worthy or worthwhile. And so by contrast, to speak of something being worthless is to declare it to be of no value. Something to be light and fleeting, of no value whatsoever. And that's exactly how 2 Samuel uses that word where the worthless object is character, or the worthless man is characterized as being like dust in the wind, like the bramble and chaff that is fit for nothing but to be cast into the fire where our our attention is immediately drawn back to Psalm chapter 1, where two paths are presented uh, before us, the path of the righteous and the path of the wicked, and whereas the path of the righteous will be established like, like the mighty trees beside the still waters, the wicked, on the other hand, or the language that Proverbs uses the fool will be like uh, the chaff that the the dust just scatters to the wind and it is found to be good for nothing. I think what struck me most this week in considering this passage is that this particular word, a Hebrew word, actually pops up in the New Testament. As many of you all know, the, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew and Aramaic, the New Testament was written in Greek, and yet the Hebrew word itself pops up in the New Testament, as the word, that Old Testament word, becomes synonymous with Satan himself. The Hebrew word here we find for worthless one is the word Belial. That might sound familiar for those of you who are familiar with uh, 2 Corinthians 6.15, when Paul instructs the church not to partner with the lawlessness, uh, not to partner with lawlessness in one's Uh, personal relationships, right? That passage, do not be unequally yoked with the unbeliever. And then he asked this question, for what agreement has Christ with Belial? What an interesting contrast. What agreement has Christ, the one who is worthy? What accord does he have with the worthless one? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What does the temple of God have to do with idols? In one sense, Satan becomes the consummate picture of the fool, the antithesis of wisdom. And what we find is, as we see the descriptor of who the worthless man really is, as it, it describes the code of conduct of uh, the, 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 the human fool par excellence, we find that this man is not interesting at all. Here we find a a figure who is just rather pathetic. Everything he does is twisted by design. He has taken deviance and has, in one sense, raised it to an art form. Here is the category of a fool who is worst, who is worse than that bleeding heart philanthropist that we read about in the opening verses of this chapter, who, who gives no thought to the welfare of his own family as, as he puts his family, the, the family farm on the line for one he does not know. That's kind of a thoughtless foolishness. Here is a form of folly that is worse than sloth. 
the lazy man who longs to sleep in and because of his desire not to do any work, he brings destruction on his own head. But here stands one far worse uh, of greater nefariousness than the other two categories. Here is a worthless man who whispers in secret, who manipulates the crowds. That's the idea of him pointing and wagging the finger. Here is a kind of a, a puny kind of street thug who is trying to boss people around so that he might uh, manipulate a particular situation as he seeks to sow uh, not um, a field, not a harvest, not something that would produce good for his family, for himself, or for the community. Rather, he sows discord. And we have to ask ourselves, to what end? He is the puppeteer of strife. And yet all that he does is done in such a cowardly way that it is done behind the backs of everybody. You know, there's nothing cool about this villain. He is utterly derivative. He's bereft of courage, integrity, honest work. Here stands a sniveling coward full of lies and deceit. I guess one of my, um, one of the things that struck me most the very first time I read C.S. Lewis's novel, That Hideous Strength, uh, the, 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 the final installment to the Ransom Trilogy. Um, we find that the final bad guys, the great arch villains at the end of this trilogy, are not like uh, a, a super cool uh, masked villain like you would find in the Batman comics. Rather, they are a bunch of nameless, faceless, middle-aged bureaucrats. And, and, and some, I remember it being really jarring because, you know, w- when you're reading this, you know, somebody who enjoys reading fantasy, you always want the, the bad guy to be big and glamorous like Sauron or Darth Vader, the Joker, something like that. But Lewis is making, I think, an intentional point, and that real evil is just kind of banal. I mean, if you remember uh, reading, if any of you have ever read um, Hannah Arendt's uh, reporting of the Eichmann trials at the end of the Second World War, when she does a study into Adolf Eichmann, one of the architects for the Holocaust under Hitler's regime, she does all the study and she finds that here is a man who seems actually rather ordinary. And that's what makes it so terrifying and scary. Here's a man who is rather boring. And yet it is a man who, through his boringness, was able to calculate such wickedness at the same time, it is terrifyingly normal, as Arendt had described um, this Nazi general, and yet at the same time so utterly demonic. And that's really the portrait of the worthless man here, a man whose deeds cause so much disruption and pain, and he's like the thorn on a rose. This is not a man that you want to emulate. Here's a man who is described as nothing but bramble that is left fit for the fire. And here his outer works reveal a corrupt disposition from which those works flow. You see that in verse 14. As it speaks of the perverted heart, there is a, what we might call a wholehearted heartlessness about him. There's not an ounce of compassion. It's like the men of Noah's day. The worthless man's thoughts are continually spun around uh, the devising and scheming of evil. Here Solomon echoes the same language of Genesis 6, 5 of the wicked men in Noah's own day. 
Unlike the sluggard, this worthless man toils, and yet his toil is worthless. He labors not for a harvest of crops, not to put food on the table, but rather to disrupt and upend the peace of the community. We have to ask ourselves to what end, right? This is not, there's no gain to be had by such strife and confusion apart from the man who just simply enjoys to make strife and confusion. There's no good to be had. It is pathetic. He's not even out to build his own kingdom. He's just out to wreak chaos and destruction. He sows strife, the whisper of doubt here about someone else's character, the dropping of the seed of the doubt uh, of doubt or mistrust there about the integrity of someone else. And before you know it, you find that everyone is pointing the finger at one another. Here's the man behind the scenes who is, who is, who is puppeteering a situation that leaves everybody uh, distrustful of one another. Instead of peace, there is strife. Instead of tranquility, there is confusion. And behind it all stands Belial, the worthless man, the man who hates God, the man who despises authority, the man who mocks justice, the man who schemes evil. It is a folly of the basest sort. And though at times he has his way and brings destruction on the people around him, Solomon tells us there will come a day, there will come a time when his day will come, and he will reap what he has sowed. The judgment that falls upon this fool is sudden and unforeseen. He sows the wind of human folly, and he reaps the whirlwind of a heavenly fury, as we find an unalterable and irreversible judgment fall upon him with great speed and furiousness. When that judgment comes upon him, there will be no recovery. You see that here at the end of verse 15. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. There is no coming back from the utter destruction that awaits this kind of fool. This man's, this man's deeds map out his final destiny. And it's a sober reminder for us that present actions do have everlasting consequences. To quote my favorite films that came out about 20 years ago, what we do now echoes an eternity. And that's the very thing that Solomon is driving home here as we consider the character and the conduct of the worthless man so as to avoid him, and also so as not to become him. That brings us back to the main thrust of Proverbs. Which path will you choose? Will you choose the path of wisdom, or will you choose the path of folly? I know this seems like such a minor passage. It would be so easy to wrap this up with other things, but I think we would do well to recognize uh, the distinct value if we want to treat the, the various passages of Scripture like a garden. Here is a distinct and unique flower that attests to the importance of wisdom in repudiating the worthlessness of such men. Here we have set before us the worthless man, a man whose worthlessness is so great that Christ himself will refer to Satan by this own name, Belial. Why would you want to be like that? There's nothing good about it. There's nothing true. In fact, there's nothing beautiful about it. Here is a character who is utterly pathetic. 
not worth emulation. There is no reward. There is nothing of value, of worth to be gained by following the path of the worthless man. And yet we find here that this is the question that heaven itself asks. How many of us have stopped to contemplate just these few verses and to recognize the great weight that is placed here as we find in the book of Revelation the great antithesis of the worthless one. In Revelation chapter 4 and 5, as uh, the Apostle John is taken up to heaven and he's brought into the heavenly worship service, what we find is the whole host of heaven, the saints and the angels are quiet because there is a question that has been asked. Who is worthy? And John breaks down into tears because he finds great tragedy that there is none worthy and he bursts into tears everyone is worthless there is no one who is able to open the seals to bring down final judgment to be the executor of God's justice on earth the whole race of men have proven themselves to be fools of varying stripes and patterns John himself is so disheartened by it like I said he bursts into tears there is no wise man with the weight, Enos. There is no man with the integrity that could pass through the fires of divine judgment and walk out unscathed, with the exception of one. The line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, who has conquered by his conquest at Calvary, he has proven his worth. He has proven his mettle so that he alone bears the gravitas. He alone manifests the utter quality and worthiness as the one able to open the seals and therefore rule in all wisdom and strength and dignity and power. See, the book of Proverbs continually keeps pushing us on, even in those subtle ways and ways that we don't expect, to consider the one in whom is found all the treasures of wisdom as Paul himself tells the church of Colossae. And it's for that reason that Christ alone ought to be worshipped and obeyed. He is the one of full worth. He alone models for us what the life of wisdom and virtue and worthiness is. And he models for us what it looks like to walk as one worthily in fear of the Lord. One who calls us to amend our ways and our speech. Again, just looking back in verses 12 to 14, you see how uh, full-orbed the worthless man is. It's something that manifests, is manifested in every facet of his being. The fingers, uh, the feet, the winking of the eye, the wagging of the head. Oh, it's, it's a whole embodied form of foolishness. And now we find, even in the New Testament, the, uh, the, the call to resurrection life, to call uh, to renewed life as we are now shaped and molded in the image of him who is wisdom itself. That's why Paul spends so much time in Ephesians talking about walking uh, in the conduct in a matter worthy of the Lord and the things that we say, the things that we look at, the things uh, that we do, that in our speech we do not speak fraudulently, but we speak with integrity and grace and with our eyes that we behold things with purity 
and simplicity and sincerity that in the places we go, we, uh, our feet are, are, shed, are, are shod with the, uh, the, the shoes of the gospel of peace and not discord, not disunity, not strife. That with our hands we labor diligently, not um, in a way that seeks to upend the community. And that with our heart, cleansed by grace and fully consecrated to the Lord, we might pursue what is good, that we might sow what is righteous, and that therefore by these things we might reap an abundant harvest that springs up to eternal life. You know, if, if folly reaps the, the worthless fruit of destruction, we find here that wisdom therefore brings health and honor and glory and blessing. If calamity befalls the Belial, the worthless one, then may we seek to pursue wisdom and to be found worthwhile on the last day by following, following in the footsteps of the one who is found to be worthy, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, as we consider your word this evening, we pray that you would give us a heart of wisdom, that we might uh, consider the worthless man and avoid his ways and seek not to be like him. Uh, as we see the fate that befalls such an individual, we pray that you would deliver us uh, from that destiny, uh, that you would train us with wisdom and compassion to, uh, to mirror and model in our own lifestyle walking the path of Christ who is wisdom incarnate. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.